Just before we get started, the Second Act Podcast would like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on Treaty 7 land inhabited by the Blackfoot Nations. This includes the Siksika, Pikani, and Kainai. We would also like to acknowledge the Sutsina and Stony Nakoda First Nations, as well as the Métis Nations and all people who make their home on Treaty 7 land in southern Alberta. But now that we've paid respects to people that were here before us, let's start the pod. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the second half of the podcast, and today's guest is a fun one for sure. Yeah, Robert Scott was was an interesting get for me. Um, friend of the show, Jenny Ogilvie, recommended that we reach out to him, and uh, I looked him up to see what, uh, what kind of stuff he's doing, and his secondary highway YouTube channel really doesn't belie all of what goes into his second act, and as I sat down with him and, and the deeper he got into it, it was just an incredible listen. I, I sat along for an hour, just, um, you know, mesmerized by, by what this guy was telling me he goes into his second act. Well, yeah. And this is a really good example of like, you don't have to change your entire life to start your second act. Robert still does his job, but he does this, his second act on the side. And it's, uh, it's a really good example. You don't always have to take the biggest leap of faith. If you want to do something, do it. I think that's a great takeaway, um, Liam. And, and I'm interested to hear, you know, what people think about it. Because to your point, he doesn't abandon his first life. He's a seventh degree black belt instructor. And, uh, and he still does that. But, I mean, he talks about how um, going all around and photographing and finding out the stories about these old abandoned houses all over Southern Alberta and Saskatchewan, how it kind of took over his life for a period, maybe at a time when he was looking for something to take over his life. Well, yeah. And, uh, jujitsu and photography is Robert's life. And just think of two more, uh, contradictory careers. Yeah, I think there there's something about them that kind of doesn't lend to themselves that make it the perfect foil for each other. Uh, just really super interesting pod. He got really deep talking about how sometimes these abandoned old farmhouses represent different things in his life. And and it was an incredible pod. And I, I'm really just excited to get this out into the world. So maybe more people will, uh, will go check them out and allow them to bring more of these stories because I believe there's a ton of them. But anyway, without any further ado, Please welcome Robert Scott. Well, hi. Well, thanks for having me. I sure appreciate you joining us. And, uh, you know, it's it's hard to make schedules work like we were just chatting about, you know, with all the, the kids and and, uh, and wives and, and different things like that. But uh, every once in a while, it has to be just fun to kind of sit down and chat a little bit about what you're trying to do and uh, and the, the some of the, you know, artistic endeavors you're able to embark upon. Yeah. No, thanks for having me. I've never... Um... I've never done a podcast before, so I will. Uh, I'll do my best to tell the story and and uh, yeah, unravel the the history behind how I got into all this stuff too. So, uh, is that where you'd like me to start, just from the beginning? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, why, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and and give us an idea of you know what what you're about, so that we can understand you know what what went into some of the changes that led you down this path. Okay. Sure. Uh, well, my name is Robert Scott. Um, I'm 50. So I was born in 1972, and um, I'm my full-time career is I'm a uh, seventh-degree black belt master in, in Taekwondo. So I've been teaching Taekwondo since 1993. I've been practicing Taekwondo since 1988-ish, 88, 89. 
Um, and I, my uh, second job or my second career, I guess you could say, would be my uh, uh, the photography uh, endeavors that I do. And I fell into that uh, by accident in about 2007 <clears throat> is when it was. So um, uh, I guess you can say it started, um, oh, well, I've got a whole spiel I can tell you about, but I'll try to intertwine it back. But um, uh, it... Um, Oh, I guess we can say I fell into photography was completely by accident. So before it happened, I was hitting the bars hard. So I was a bar star. I was uh, dating lots of women. I was binging booze on the weekends. I never had a problem with booze, but it was just me and my buddies. We would just go out and get party. We would just party all the time. And uh and anyways, I was also a coach for Team Canada at the time. And uh, I went to Australia. So I took a, a few students all the way to Australia. And then uh, they did quite well. And when I came back, I had no photos of anything, like like nothing. And I was a little bit choked. I'm like, why did I travel all the way to Australia? And I didn't even take a single picture. So uh, my sister gave me her little tiny point-and-shoot camera. It was like a, it was a, an eight, eight or... 10 megapixel Canon uh, digital sure shot or something like that. But it actually took really, really good photos. And I also had a motorcycle at the time. I had a um, uh, Honda uh, CBR 1000. It was a stupid, uh, fast motorcycle, way too much for me. I don't even know why I bought it. It was probably because I was full of testosterone at the time. And, and um, I was just overcompensating i guess you can say in that in that area of my life because i was just kind of lost i was partying i was dating i wasn't i wasn't committed to anybody i was just kind of meandering around i didn't really have a like i had a father growing up but i didn't really have uh, a father that that really kicked me in the ass and and said you need to do this and you need to do that and i'll get more on him later but um so I got back from Australia. My sister gave me a point-and-shoot camera, and I jumped on my CBR 1000, which is a insane crotch rocket, which I didn't need to have. And uh, and I went out cruising around, and I got caught in a thunderstorm, and I pulled over, and there was this old uh, uh, deserted building that I just ran into because I didn't want to get soaking soaking wet. So I ran in there and took a couple of pictures with my point and shoot thought it was pretty cool it reminded me a lot of the times growing up in brandon manitoba because that's initially where where i'm from like a prairie boy and in brandon there's a lot of these old abandoned houses all around the uh in, in our hometown and and that's as kids we would jump on our bmx bikes and we would go and explore these places and get into trouble and and uh you know scare each other those are like vivid memories that i had growing up as a kid that they never did leave me so when i went into this old band and structure it really brought back all these memories the smells the sounds just the what's around the next corner um but now i'm an adult i wasn't as i'm not as scared as i was when i was a kid so the history began to kind of come out of the woodwork so to speak um i started noticing you know discarded furniture and radios and and letters and and uh um, you know, overtone, overturned chairs and stoves and looking through all the, the cabinets, you would see what these people used to you know, eat on and, and everything. It was pretty interesting in, in seeing in those shapes. And, and plus, it really made for great photographs. 
So came back after the, uh, you know, finding that place and uh, posted to Facebook. So all the stars kind of began to align, like with social media and digital technology. And um, so then I would post this onto Facebook and then you would get the blue little likes. And then you would like, hey, that made me feel really good that somebody appreciated the work that I was doing. And then people would ask questions. Well, where did you go? Uh, well, where are you going to go next time? Well, did you find anything about the history? And it kind of opened up something inside of me that had never um, happened before. And I was really intrigued with this dialogue with people that I was having on social media. It wasn't about the pats on the backs or the accolades or the, you know, the thumbs or the likes or the shares or anything like that. It was more so this connection I was getting with people uh, with this really cool thing that I just started to do. So the next, uh, next weekend I said, well, I'm going to do it again, but I'm going to do a little bit of research on abandoned um, ghost towns of Alberta. And the first uh, person that popped up was uh, Johnny Bukuski. And he he is a, um, uh, um, oh boy, where is he now? I think he's in Innisfil. I haven't heard from him for a while. But uh, he was a, a writer. And he wrote a bunch of books um, that you could, you would find at Chapters or find a gas station. And, and it's like Ghosts of Alberta or uh, Abandoned Ghost Towns of Alberta and such. And uh, anyways, his website popped up. And he had all these really editorial type columns with really historic photographs and those really intrigued me so i took a couple of those ghost towns that he talked about and i said okay well i'm gonna go here and then i jumped on my bike next weekend and i started hitting up all these different ghost towns with my little point and shoot camera and uh i unleashed the beast i was like this is insane this is so much fun i just and my buddies my bar buddies were like well, where's Bobby this weekend? Well, how could we? And someone says, oh, you know, he's at some old abandoned house in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> you know, he's yeah. not, he's not coming up. So the bar days were gone. The dating random women were gone. Um, all of my time and effort and energy was put onto finding these places and heading out into the middle of nowhere, which would take me hours and sometimes days to find. Um, and then I guess you would suppose, or I guess I could say that all of the isolation and the desolation and the, the, the hours and hours and hours of navigating the gravel roads and the secondary highways and such, um, uh, you start to talk to yourself and you start to get into your own brain and you start to revisit your past. And eventually I started breaking myself down to um, like breaking all the myths, I guess I could, you could say that I had built up about myself and started getting in touch with the real person who I, who I was. And I know it sounds a little bit crazy, but it's true what they say when, when you're left to your own devices and when you're left in solitude by yourself, you, you end up going a little bit stir crazy and you start to really start to dissect yourself. So I um, sold my motorcycle, bought myself a Jeep, and then, um, oh boy, $30,000 worth in camera gear later, um, I've hit up pretty much every location all throughout Southern Alberta and into Saskatchewan. And, and, uh, and it actually really, it got me to Africa twice. I was in Rwanda for a month and I was in South Sudan for two weeks. Um, I've been to Iceland four times. I've been to Greenland once. I've been through the American Southwest. 
Uh, I've been to Baker Lake Nunavut, which, which is a geographical center of Canada. Um, so the and and lots of other places. So I, I would suggest that the camera really um, sent me to places I never thought I would ever go, and it really introduced me to who I was, uh, someone who I never thought I never had an artistic bone in my body. Here I am creating you know, majestical landscapes in Iceland. It's, it's, it's pretty bizarre because that was never me ever to begin with. So, so yeah, that was the, the beginning, the beginning. Well, yeah, that's quite the beginning. I mean, it's, it's interesting to hear you speak about your life in martial arts and it took, um, you know, something like discovering that little bit of artistic bent and like you say, the culmination or the, you know, whatever you, the, convergence of of social media and and the feedback and and all the things that layered on top of it for you to find yourself like i think most people that associate you know lifelong martial artists is discipline and knowledge of self and all those things and you kind of were able to have have both of them concurrently but not necessarily be aware of them. And and now I, I'm assuming now you're, you have all of that and you you understand who Robert is a little more holistically. And, and you had that in you all the time, right? It's, it's better now that, that I have a kid. So I have a son, he's going to be five here on Sunday. And, um, I've, it's, it's really culminated to just who I am right now, but, uh, just going back to being a martial artist, you, you have to understand that, um, when I was in my teens and in my twenties, um, I was extremely arrogant and egotistical because what happens is when you wrap a back, a black belt around your waist, and if you can kick over people's heads and you're winning tournaments and you're busting boards and people are bowing to you, calling you, sir, day in and day out. And if, and if you have no substance inside of you, all of that attention that you get solely because you have a black belt um, is the, the biggest farce ever. So if you ever meet somebody in the martial arts, uh, don't be blinded by, oh, you're such and such a rank and this and, and that. Um, you can't judge someone's character based on their badges and their pins and their stripes and their levels on their belt and their certificates and their tournaments that they've won. You, you can't base anybody's character on, on their martial art background. In fact, I would suggest more recently in the past, I'd say five to seven years, I've found finally understood what it means to be a martial artist and what it, with the responsibility that we have, because I teach, I have about 200 students and the responsibility I have with each and every one of those kids' brains in my hands, um, a, a lot of martial artists don't get it. They just want to kick things, and they just want to bust people's heads and break boards and get the medals and travel the world and do MMA fighting and this and that. But when it comes to actually instructing and teaching, um, it, there it's a huge responsibility. And like I said, when I was younger, I was completely arrogant. And then, um, and then I think we were going to talk about the construction trade I got into as well. Yeah. So it was um, just before I got into photography, uh, my martial art career was beginning to take a nosedive. My hips were beginning to go. I wasn't competing anymore. Um, I wasn't getting the 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 um, 
the affirmations I, that I used to be getting and my club began to take a hit for it. So I started losing students because I was just becoming a lousy instructor. I didn't care about my students anymore. I was looking at them as a paycheck, not, not actual people. So I had to get a job. So uh, talked to a buddy of mine and he got me into glazing. Uh, if you don't know what glazing is, that's where you put in, I was in the commercial glass trade. So we would put glass in these buildings and we'd hang off the side of skyscrapers. It was a really cool job. It was really fun. However, me going in there, a cocky, arrogant, fourth or fifth degree black belt I was at the time. Um, these guys were yelling at me. They were screaming at me. They were teasing me. They were calling me names. They were belittling me. They were saying, pick up that broom, go sweep. You go downstairs and you you pick up my my tool my tool case and you haul it all the way back up seven flights of, of stairs. So for a guy like me, who was who was a big tough guy with a black belt, how dare you? How dare you talk to me like that? Who the hell do you think you're talking to? I was like livid and I wanted to quit, but I couldn't quit. Couldn't quit because I had to pay my mortgage. So I was forced into that to stay in that job, which was the best thing that ever happened to me. Because I say this all the time. I say that the construction trade deconstructed me and then reconstructed me because they wiped away this, this black belt of mine. They said, well, I don't care who you are. I don't care what belt you have. I don't care how many boards you can break. I don't care how high, how high you can kick. All I care about is that you show up, you show up on time, you show up sober, you show up with a willingness to work and learn and bust your ass off all day. And then if we ask you to do overtime, you're sticking, you're sticking around. That's all they cared about. And then it took me five long years in, in the trade um, to really appreciate that job. That was the best job I think I've ever had in my life because the guys were brilliant. They were men. They were masculine. They were, they didn't, they, they, didn't care about you, but they really cared about you. Um, and anyways, that that whole trade, um, we forty five of us got laid off one Christmas, and so I said, well, either I can scramble and go find another glass job, or I can really pick up my taekwondo business again and uh, run with the photography, in which I've done. So I've been doing photography and taekwondo now for a close to ten years now, nonstop. So. It's interesting to me out of that, how you, you know, so much of your self-worth was around your physical prowess for so long. And you didn't, like you said, you were deteriorating, but I mean, as far as layman would have been, I mean, a physical match with one of those glaziers, those more senior guys, even in your quote unquote deteriorating state would have not been a match at all. But you, you understood that um, this wasn't a physical thing. Like you needed to, to no. get the yeah. mental part of it up to be, to, to, to keep this job, to pay that mortgage, to improve upon the skills and eventually, you know, win over their, their respect or whatever, because you couldn't do it. You couldn't enforce your physical will and impose your physical will on them. Like you've been able to up until this point in your life. Right. Yeah. And you, you figured that out. And I just, it's interesting that when you look back on it and you see that, and I understand exactly what you're talking about because I worked on on oil rigs when I was younger, and it's yeah. the same thing. These these people are there and they're hard on you and they treat you like very poorly, but ultimately they're doing it because they need to make a, a work out of you because they're putting you know 
they're trusting you that you're going to do your job so that they can keep their job and do all the things that people go to work for. And ultimately at the end, when everyone realizes that you kind of look around and go, well, that was pretty cool. Like we, we did that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't really appreciate it until kind of like the, the smoke is cleared. Um, especially today, today's society. And it's, it's kind of interesting with my tech with no class, especially with the, the, the little kickers that I teach, like, uh, I teach from four-year-olds all the way up to, well, 65-year-olds. But the the young ones are where I love to teach and shape and mold because I'm all about masculinity. And I'm all about, you guys are too soft. I'm all about, you need to do hard things. <laughs> like, you're going to do 10 push-ups and you're not going to stop until they're done. And there's no complaining about it. Pain is temporary. You're going to get over it and you need to you need to toughen up. And the parents love it. The parents actually love the fact that I'm tough on the kids. I'm not not a jerk, but I'm like, hey, you got to do this. You know, get off the couch. Stop playing video games. Stop eating sugar. Drink water first thing in the morning. You know, like if you're going to do something, commit to it. It's okay to 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 stop it and quit it, but make sure you go back and you finish it. So, and it's just like anything with whether a construction worker or photography or taekwondo. Um, you know, you, you blitzkrieg it. You go in full at it full tilt and then if you fail that's where all the the learning happens but the thing is about failure is um when people fail they get so blinded by their rage they get so blinded by their ego that they never see the um the learning opportunities that are left behind from failure or fear right so because we're, we're so full of ourselves so if somebody fails and they become emotional or they cry okay that's fine you can do that but then take a deep breath and then figure out why it is that you failed and then go back and try again and we don't get a lot of that and i, I got a lot of that in construction trade so my father was also on the um he was an oil rig guy he um was a rig superintendent for like these big massive oil rigs off of like the North Sea and such. Like I lived in Scotland when I was a kid for two years and I also lived in Trinidad. So I was an oil rig man's son. But my dad was never there. He was home for a month, gone for a month. Uh, my dad also had a, an al alcoholic parent. So, and he was beat up pretty bad by by his, his dad. So my dad never really knew how to be a father. And uh, he and I were really distant. Like as much as I loved him and as much as I admired him, uh, he and I never connected, never. And, um, and I forget when it was, but, um, my dad made a really big mistake and it split the family up and I never talked to him for 14 years. Oh, wow. So, yeah. 14 years. He and I never, never connected. And then my uncle contacted me and said, well, you better get in there and see your dad cause he's dying of cancer. I'm like, what? I'm like, oh, you gotta be kidding me. So, and that was the hardest thing I ever had to ever had to do in my life was drive to where he was. And, uh, um, he was in the garage, like the garage was all nice light up and everything for him, but, but he couldn't walk upstairs anymore. So I had to go in there and, and like, I broke down as soon as I saw him and cause I hadn't seen him in 14 years and here's this pale sickly guy and he was only 65. And, but I had the opportunity to, I told him I love him. Uh, I, he said that he made mistakes and, and he, he didn't say much about it, but he kind of acknowledged what he did. Um, and that was the, the hardest thing I ever had to do. However, I'm so glad I did it because most men or even most kids who are at odds with their, their, uh, parents, 
they never and they never get to say goodbye so i'm so glad i did because if i didn't i would have 100 regret it so anyways right after he he passed i had just met my future wife and then we had a son the following like the following year so it's interesting how all that happened and then so me getting married and having my son led to this whole brand new life that i'm leading now which is led to this documentary called the secondary highway and that's i mean that's in uh, uh there's a lot of twists and turns in that story. I guess the first uh, kind of correlation that I'm drawing is you're about the age now that your dad was when you and him cut off all contact. Yep. And, and you know, just the different places you, you are in your life versus where he was in his life. And I think that's also a little bit of the sign of the times. I mean, at, at, at the point in his life when he decided to go down that, that was that road that's what you did right you got the first job that somebody would give you and you just did it until yeah. you know the, the thought of him at 42 years old walking away from a, a good living because it just wasn't what he wanted to do anymore probably never never crossed his mind yeah. but you all these things that you were doing um had this physical masculine uh connotation or background to it that's mm. the background that you came from that's what you until you you and your dad you know were no longer in communication that's what you saw and yet when you, when the the beauty or the artistic expression or whatever you want to call that of photography came calling mm -hmm. um you you were you were very quick to acknowledge it even if it was just because you knew what you were doing at that moment wasn't it for you and you needed a change was that something that kind of you you noticed those, you know, the beautiful sunsets or the, the the mountain peaks your whole life, and now you were just embracing it, or was this a whole new thing for you? It, it was definitely it was a whole new thing because, uh, um, the the I would say I would suggest the very first few years of photography was about getting the shot. It was about, uh, it was actually about figuring it all out technically. Then when I figured it out technically, I'm like, oh, okay. Now, then it became about creative expression and composition. Then when then I achieved that, then it became about storytelling. So then after that, it became soul searching in that order, if that makes any sense. Because there was no way that I was going to do soul searching right out the gate on that motorcycle. I wasn't soul searching. I was doing something cool. <laughs> yeah. Then I was learning the trade. I was learning the camera. I was learning where the locations were. I was learning about aperture and ISO and shutter speed. I was learning about tripods and gears and or um, gear and lenses and 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 um, star trails and long exposures and shutter speeds and such. Then. That led me to the creative composition where I'm like, well, this is beautiful. Why is it beautiful? Well, why is it beautiful to me? So then I started answering questions or asking myself questions. Then I had to go to more and more places and they were far away. So I'm trapped in my Jeep with myself for hours and hours and hours listening to Johnny Cash, listening to never ending white lights never listening to um uh, george jones uh pink floyd uh 
oh boy, you you name it. A lot of a lot of the the same music my dad listened to, believe it or not. And then that's when you start picking yourself apart. Then photography started meeting it was completely different the 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 images so now when i look at specific images on my uh, in my hard drives tons of hard drives some images will pop out that some people say well that that image sucks for me there's a reason why that image is resonating to me because of the the state of mind i was in or the mindset i was in the the moment that i took those pictures and then of course that led to now here here's the interesting thing is uh the night photography portion um i kind of had a, uh, an epiphany when i was talking with somebody about this the reason why they said well how can how can you walk around these old abandoned houses in the middle of the night how can you go in there at three o'clock in the morning with your flashlights and light it up why why are you doing that and then i started thinking to myself why the hell am i doing that and then i realized that these metaphorically these old houses were my father so they were tall, they were stoic, they were quiet, they were wise, they were vacant, they were silent, um, they were ominous. And here I'd be kneeling in front of these old abandoned houses, trying to capture it, trying to get some type of a reaction out of this house. And then when I wasn't getting it, what I would do is I would go into the house and I would light it up myself with life. So now I'm I'm drawing I'm actually breathing life into this dead thing that isn't there, which is metaphorically I would suggest my father, which is why I'm doing it. I know it's kind of deep, but when you take a look at it, that's kind of what you're doing. You're 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 trying to get these wise old things to speak to you, and what better way to do it than an expression of photography? And you are creatively in in charge of it. And um, then I take it up one notch onto this documentary now i start getting permission to go onto these places and then i start meeting these old guys and these old guys are so much like my dad they're they've got the big burly mustache they're tall they're quiet they're like a little bit baritone voice and they're gravelly and they're like where why do you want to know about this and why do you want to know about that but rather than be intimidated by these guys uh well these men i should say these men opened up to me and for me that was incredible because now I have these guys, men, sorry, who are now opening up to me and I was extremely shy and taken back. But the more of these men that I met and the more stories they told about these old places, the more I began to change and grow into, it felt like I'm growing into a man as well because now I've got this generation accepting me, which my father never did or never had the, the communication skills to um to show me so now when you uh look at these documentaries and you listen to those old men talk that's that's pretty some pretty powerful things because i think there's a lot of men in my position who have that relationship with their dad or never never had a relationship with their dad and getting this from these men now and these old abandoned houses has been um it's been I don't know how would you put it uh just it's hard to put your finger on it like what what how would you say it it's just it's like it's almost like a, a like a the end of a chapter or like right. your, the nail in the coffin or the you know the 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 hug that you get you know at the end of the movie <laughs> yeah 
you know, it's closure, I guess you can say closure. It's so the part that struck me about that, as you talked about that was how, you know, our, our artistic photography may appear. You still looked at it very academically at the beginning. Like it, it didn't, it wasn't necessarily an expression of, of artist or your artistic, you know, vision at first, it was about aperture and shutter speed and all those things that you could relate very well to in the back, the other parts of your life. Yeah. Except it had these other things that slowly crept in and before you knew it or in your story, anyways, you were at this point where you were making these huge leaps of what this means and what that represents and at that point, you were so wrapped up in it that even if any of that was making you uncomfortable or not what you were after, you were too far gone. You were too far down. And you're at the point now where you're making these secondary highway documentaries. You're doing these things. You're talking to these people. And at that point, I mean, you're in it, right? There's no, you know, you're sitting there, like you say, with this gruff old man that, that wears the handkerchief around his neck and, and rides horses. And, and at that point, man, there's no turning back because you're sitting there hearing all his stories and, uh, you know, the, the catharsis that would come from something like that, you, you just have to keep riding it through to see what it, what the next twist or turn is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's never ending. Um, uh, I wish I could do this full time, but obviously I've got a young family and I can't do it. So, um, and uh, my director right now, Braden, he's over in Ireland doing his uh, a degree in film. So we have episode threes coming out soon, and but we've we've filmed I think nine episodes, so we've still got a bunch more. However, those are kind of on on hold right now, and it kind of sucks because some of these men that we've we've uh, interviewed, they they're on their deathbed. Right. Oh, yes. One the one guy's in his 90s. I don't know if he's going to be around by the time we get to his episode, which is going to be kind of sad. But and so people would say, well, what about funding? Well, no one wants to give me any money. And they say, well, what about grants? You know how hard it is to get a grant? It's well, so hard. It's you so need, hard. Yeah, it's tough. You need to engage somebody who does like grant. You know, I've worked with. I have. Fun. I have. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like that's that's how you get grants is you go to a grant like somebody who does that for a living and they get you your grant, right? It costs yeah, money. Then they never get back to you. Oh, oh yeah. well, we've got this one here. And, oh, and, and another thing is like, not like it's difficult reading. I was even reading through these grants and it's difficult because it sounds horrible, but I'm a, like, I'm not the fit that they're looking for. Like right. the, on the, the top portion is like LGBTQ. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm not that. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's tough. And uh, I know there's, you know, history grants and Alberta stuff, but, uh, there's, yeah, I've, I've looked into it and yeah. Anyways. So this so, is where we're at. Yeah. So, so talk a little bit about some of these people that, that you have met, like, is there somebody that stands out or is there, is there somebody that completely was the opposite of what you were expecting, how it went down the, the information that they had and were willing to share? You know, each and every person has been unique. Um, the very first episode with Ben Thorson. Wow. Ben was such a nice man. Um, super nice. And, uh, like, uh, I didn't expect for, I didn't expect him to tear up like he did. Cause when he started where we were doing the interview in the old abandoned house that he grew up in. Right. And we're looking around and, you know, he starts to reminisce and he just becomes distant and 
you can you can see the tears welling up in his in his eyes and i was like oh boy like i was feeling uncomfortable I'm like what do i do what do i do I'm, I'm not an interviewer at all i'm a photographer like i just brought this guy out here and put him on camera and i want him to tell tell him about you know all of his experiences and now he's crying what am i going to do did i make a mistake like yikes it, like this is a lot of responsibility like who the hell am i <laughs> so that was pretty much you know my my big thought with all these people i'm like who the hell am i to sit down with these people and talk to them and they're opening up to me i better do something with the with these documentaries i have to if i just leave them around lying doing nothing like i'm doing a disservice for them but uh anyone anyone one of them stand out um roger was pretty cool he's the one with the bandana and, and the cowboy hat um he yeah he was pretty gruff he's tough he broke his neck twice and he was really cool. Um, just trying to think. Ada, Ada Jones. She's 85, 86. She was the um, the barmaid for uh, the Seymour Hotel. Um, she, I thought she was going to be super scary. I thought she was like going to punch me out or something. But she's the kindest, sweetest, softest woman. But I don't think you'd want to cross her. But wow, she's the the heart of Hannah. I would suggest like she, and it's it's. It's horrible because these people are so iconic and they just live in a tiny shack, one one room shack in Hannah and and everyone knows her, but her her life is just humble. Like someone like her, she should be a superstar, but you know, that but maybe she shouldn't because that what a life. That's hard to it's it's hard. That's a hard question. Any of them stand out. They all stand out. In, in their own unique ways. Um, Ivan, uh, his he told me about his great aunt that was shot and killed by her brother in the kitchen by accident. This is in the early 1900s. That was a tough, that was a tough interview. Um, ben, uh, he's 95. Uh, he, he was tearing up too about uh, I, one of the things that we ask is, um, what are you most proud of? And then the majority of them say their, their careers and their children. And when they mention their children, they begin to tear up a bit too. And I can't somehow, you know, recall that. I'm sure my dad was very proud of me too, but, uh, did he, he tear up? I don't know. Maybe he did. So, you know, all these interviews with these, these guys, these men, you know, I, I wonder, what their relationships are like with their kids. In fact, I think I've asked that to a couple of the men. I said, what are your relationship like with your kids? And uh, yeah, they open up a bit. Yeah. Let's like, I, I kind of knew that it was maybe a bit of an unfair question because it's, you know, how do you, how do you, especially if not all of them are out there, right. And people don't know them all yet. No. Um, but I, I still, I got the response that I wanted because you were very, uh, you reflected on it and it was great. And I think, um, I think there's, there's a lot of good answers in there and I don't know that there's a right answer. I just think there's some good answers. Yeah. Like I said, they're all, wow. Like they're, they're so downstairs in my office, I've got a wall full of their portraits. So I think I've got about, I don't know how many I got there. I got about 14 or 15 of them up there now. So I'm down in my office. Everyone who I've interviewed so far, I've got a portrait of them up there. And uh, yeah, they're all still alive right now. I know Emerson is, 
Emerson, he was the uh, train conductor for the Hannah Roundhouse. I think he's he's not doing very well right now, but yeah. So it's they're all going to be gone soon. And you, you know, as much as anyone, you've committed some of their story to uh, to. You know, I guess we don't say tape anymore. We've committed it to 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 digital though, and 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 being able to share those stories. I mean this this started out as a, a fairly you know for lack of a better term selfish way thing for you to do and it's come full circle where you're you're getting these stories of people that deserve to have them heard and and it's just not going to happen any other way other than somebody like you seeking them out and doing the work to get them down yeah yeah i think uh um you know there the people do blogs and such but uh I haven't seen anyone do a video, like a documentary series like this yet. Uh, not with old abandoned houses, you know, that are being torn down and such. Um, I think I'm the only one doing it so far. Um, this, I have another project that I'm working on. It's called Gone to be Angels. And it's about abandoned graves all across the prairies. And uh, a quick little story on this one. The reason why it's called Gone to be Angels is because this one woman brought me out to this abandoned grave in the middle of nowhere. And, and uh, I, for, I forget the name of the child on there, but the child was like five and she had contracted scarlet fever. So she's with her mother and she's dying. And uh, the little girl uh, whispers to her mother, look, mother, I, the angel, can you see the angels? The angels are here. And then, then she passes away. And then um, so on the bottom of the grave, this little five-year-old's grave, it says, uh, gone to be with angels. On, is inscribed on the bottom so and so anyways after that i'm like man there's got to be more of these graves around and there's thousands thousands of them out there so i've got my my map and i've already done a ton of research and i've talked to some old farmers as well and they said yeah there's an old grand abandoned grave over there and there's another old abandoned grave over there so i've been out to some of these places already and i've photographed them and the the project will be uh, gone to be with angels or gone to be yeah, gone to be, yeah, gone to be with angels or gone to be, yeah, gone to be with angels, I think is what it is. And uh, I did do the one research on one grave and it was the mother of the homesteader because it just says mother on the grave, I think is what it says. No, it just says 1910 scrawled onto a rock. So I had to do, I had to pull up the, the LSD location, find out who homesteaded there, then had to do a research into this guy. And then I found out that it was mother that came over and she died on the farm. And back then there was, this was like in the middle of nowhere. There was like no cemeteries, no churches, no nothing. So he just buried her in the backyard. And now you've just got this little rock that says 1910 on it. And uh, anyways, I found out, I found out her name. Her last name was uh, Bueller and her first name was Ah, it escapes me now. Anyways, it's in my notes. So, <laughs> yeah. So now that you like, you've done all this research on all these different um, opportunities that you've had, and 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 you've you've looked around and you see how today our society views these things. Um, you know that that 
abandoned house, you know, that used to be a yard. Now they farm to right up within six or eight feet of it. And, and, you know, it's just in the way and you'll see where you, you drove by that house for two years on your way somewhere else. And you thought, I'm going to stop there. And then one year you come and it's gone and, you know, and, and we, we don't have necessarily the appreciation for what occurred in those, in those old homesteads and, and what, how, what happened there shapes, the people around there who shapes the people we all are today. Do you, do you have any kind of um, romantic view, I guess, of, of those past times of, uh, and, and as you uncover more and, and talk more to these people that, that are attached to those, is there something about that that you just kind of wish we could slow things down a little bit and, and appreciate some of that? Yeah. I, um, I've got an answer for you. You, you probably, people would be shocked by it, but um I've actually moved on from that, and let me explain why. Um, in southern Alberta, I think I've pretty much photographed every band house that there is. So I have them all. So now that they're torn down, um, I rather than me feel bad or sad anymore, I'm like, it's gone. It was going to go anyways. I've got the memory. I've got it. I've got the house. I've got where it was. I can do the research on my own time, whenever I want. The history is not going anywhere. The history is going to be there. The The picture I've got, as long as I keep it backed up, is not going to go anywhere. So I've had to really separate myself because of my young family, because my wife was getting annoyed at me. She's like, you can't go away this weekend. And I'm like, well, honey, I've got to go get this house before it dies. And you know, I, I, I need to go get it at this perfect time, at this perfect sunset. She goes, no, you've got to be here. It costs too much money to go and this and that. So I had to divorce that, not my wife, but I had to divorce yeah. that idea. <laughs> Trust me, it's been a lot of arguments over this. But I've now come to terms with, I've got thousands upon thousands of images of old abandoned houses that will last me until I'm dead. So I'm just going to take the ones I have right now, and I'm going to edit them, and then re-edit them, and then re-edit them as my skills keep on developing. The history is not going anywhere. I'm going to keep on digging into that history. I will find descendants. I will interview the descendants. I'm sure they will have some old pictures. So I've just come to, to that realization that I'm not, I'm not going to be romantic anymore about these places. I'm, I'm going to let them go. And I'm going to be okay with that. It's the other people who have never gotten off their asses, never gotten off the couch, never gotten, never pulled over to the side of the road and, you know, walked out into the grasshopper fields and and uh taking the time just to you know pay homage or respect to these places i've got all those memories i'm pretty i'm i'm happy with that but um you know every once in a while i i I get a little bit nostalgic and i get a little bit sad because there's a few houses out there that are my favorites and they're still standing and when i find out that they're going to be gone or going soon then i'll be like yeah i'll be sad so well that's i always you know, try to talk to people a little bit about how this vacation affects their mental health. And that was kind of what I was, you know, getting at is, is you pour a lot into these things and if to find out that, that somebody else just bulldozed it or burnt it or whatever, how you manage that. But uh, you started off your answer by saying, I have an answer for you. And man, yeah. did you ever have an answer for me? That was incredible. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh boy. Yeah, it's it's can be pretty tragic. I'll tell you a quick little little story here. Not too long ago, August actually. So I run this thing called abandoned photo tours. So I take people out to these old abandoned houses, like a group around about of, of eight to ten people, and we get full permission from the farmers. So we take them out and we do, you know, three days, three nights, you know, about a, a dozen different old abandoned houses. So I had this one guy on my tour, and uh, he was a nice enough guy. Anyways, uh, a couple weeks after the tour, he decides to um, share all the locations on social media. And not only was he sharing my places, but he was sharing thousands of pins that he had generated over the years on his map. And he started just posting pictures and uh, posting these GPS locations. And uh, so anyways, I was nice, but I said, I don't understand why you're doing this because you're pushing people to these properties. Uh, landowners are going to get furious and eventually these places are going to get torn down. So you're, you're, I see what you're doing that you want people to go visit these places. However, you're, you know, it's pretty irresponsible what you're doing. Anyways, the internet blew up over this. Um, I think he, he left Instagram and, or, or was removed or something, but there, there are people out there who are disrespectful and who don't, Pay respect to the to the the farmers or or no trespassing trespassing signs what have you, and uh, ultimately those people are going to be the ones that are going to be putting the match in the farmers' hands that are going to throw throw it into the house and it's going to be gone. So that's I think I'm more upset about just losing a house organically. So. So at the end of the pod, I like to. I like to talk to people about what they're what they're doing now and and what success at this this current venture looks like and uh, what it, what they thought it might be when they started and and how different their view of success maybe is. So so when you first decided jumped on your you know your Honda 1000 and went for a rip and and today obviously success is very different looking but just how different is it for you Robert? Um when it first started it was uh, curiosity. Then when I started getting better, uh, then it started becoming about money. Then, because I ended up doing things like weddings and portraiture and things like that, which I'm not very good at. Actually, I'm not bad at it. It's just, I find it just wasn't for me. Um, it's, you know, because I, I wanted, you know, photography to be my big money-making career. But anything that you do for money, you end up just giving a little bit of your soul away to it. And uh, uh, I didn't want to do that anymore. So I ended up pouring all my efforts and energy back into to Taekwondo. So now my Taekwondo club has never been strong, like as, as it has it ever been in its life. It's like 200 students. We're, we're killing it. It's awesome. And now with the photography that I do, it's it's equalized. Now I'm back to doing something with substance, something that I love to do. It feeds my soul, not necessarily my bank account. So that's kind of this where the success was. I really wanted uh, photography to be uh, financially successful for me. And I'm sure it could have been. I'm just not a very good, good at business and marketing. But um, I, I kind of don't want to sell my my soul for portraiture and weddings and architecture and real estate and things like that although i can do it and i still do do it um i think my the, the success is what i'm having now with uh honoring uh the past with these 
you know, photos of the old abandoned places, the secondary highway documentary, doing the research, working on this Gone Be With Angels um, portion, uh, and then just staying the course with my young family and kicking, kicking around in Taekwondo. And that's where it is. That's where it is. It's, it's onward and upward. What a great podcast. I, like I said, in the intro with uh, Liam, I, I didn't really know what to expect uh, with Robert and he got really into the weeds on why he was doing what he's doing, the, the genesis of it and what he was taking out of it. And it was really interesting to just kind of sit back and let him, let him tell me uh, just to listen because so often when you get into these podcasts, you have so many questions. It's all you can do to just let the guy finish talking before you ask another question. And that wasn't the case with this one. Robert had so many insights onto why he does what he does, the way he does it. It felt like if you just held your breath a beat longer, he would tell you so much more. And that was a lot of fun to sit down and go through with him. Great podcast. Great guest. Thank you very much to Jenny Ogilvie for suggesting that I reach out to Robert. And thanks so much for Robert for being such a great guest. I mean, he didn't really leave anything on the table there. He he let it all out. And it was just a lot of fun to sit down and, and chat with him about something that, I mean, let's face it, we all drive by these abandoned houses and we don't think much of them. So this is the last podcast before March, and we're going to start in on some unbelievable Women's History Month stories. We've got a bunch of unbelievable women lined up. We've got Millennial Miss Frizzle from TikTok. She's uh a lady from Atlanta, Georgia, her name's Maggie Perkins, and she is a master's level educator, and she walked away from education to work at Costco because of the way that the life of an educator was being uh, laid out in front of her. She just couldn't live like that, and now she works at Costco, and, and she loves everything about it. We've got a couple more really, uh, really good ones lined up. We've got uh, Alicia Denny from Lloyd Minister, uh, Saskatchewan. She is a death doula. We talk about some of the things you might not know about that uh, particular vocation. And uh, the other one that we have um, recorded is, oh my, we have a lady who is works in the oil field as a medic um, alongside of her second career as a spicy accountant, I think is what she calls it. Uh, she's got an OnlyFans, and we talk about what goes into that. So so much fun to talk to those girls. we got a couple more lined up for Women's History Month. We just want to tell the stories of women who are taking things into their own hands and embarking upon their second act. So as we always say, there are no wrong answers. There's no test at the end. Make the most out of every day. The Second Act Podcast would like to thank Ben Sound for the intro and outro music, Happy Rock. We'd also like to thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, subscribe, or whatever the service you're using to listen to. Use this to measure how much you like something. Join us next time on the Second Act Podcast. When you're listening back to this, Dad, you're being loud as hell.